I will never forget an experience I had when I was taking a theology class in my doctoral program. The class was taught by a seminary professor from back east. We covered many areas of theology over a period of time, Christology, Bibliology, Soteriology, Angelology, etc. And then we came to eschatology, which is the theology of the last days or the theology of end times. The professor delivered his lecture this way. Jesus is coming back. Any questions? That was it. And he wasn't kidding. He went on to say that it is fruitless to study eschatology or prophecy because so many bizarre things are taught by people who spend way too much time on the subject. He even made the statement, don't read the book of Revelation. Read the book of Romans. It may surprise you to hear that many Christians have a similar attitude. They believe it is unnecessary or even unhealthy to spend time studying portions of God's Word that tell about the end times. They see no value in studying the book of Revelation or in the study of predictive prophecy, though they may not say it as bluntly as my seminary professor did. When he made the comment, don't read the book of Revelation, my mind immediately went to two of the most unique promises found anywhere in the Bible. Let me show them to you by way of introduction this morning. Turn with me to the book of Revelation chapter 1, the very last book of the Bible, the first chapter. Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. And keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. The content of this book is so unique, so special, that there is a unique promised blessing to those who read these words and keep them. The same thing is alluded to at the end of the book of Revelation. Look with me at the very last chapter of this book, chapter 22. Chapter 22, verse 7, Jesus says here in this verse, Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Isn't that amazing? The book of Revelation opens with a promised blessing and it closes with a promised blessing. No other book in the Bible contains such unique promises. And here's the interesting thing. Except for the first three chapters, the content of the book of Revelation is all about events still in the future. That ought to make us realize just how important it is to God that we consider things to come, that we consider future events. God wants us to focus our attention on plans for the future. In fact, 
in Revelation 1 and 22, he promises a special blessing to those who hear and keep the words of the prophecy of this book. He wants us to understand those things. And he wants that understanding to impact the way we live daily. We see this same reality in our text for this morning in 2 Peter chapter 3. So back up with me just a few small letters to the book we have been considering for several weeks now, 2 Peter chapter 3. Please follow along as I read verses 8 through 13. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 8. But beloved, do not forget this one thing. That with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? As I mentioned a few moments ago, there are some who feel that God doesn't want us to give any thought to or consideration of future events. But this text alone would contradict such a notion. Here in this passage, the Apostle Peter talks about the future day of the Lord, and he talks about the practical implications in our lives today. And beloved, that's how it should work. What I mean is, God did not give us passages of Scripture about the future simply to stimulate our curiosity. God has told us about the future so it will have practical benefit in our lives today. Considering predictive prophecy has a way of clearing up our focus, clearing up our perspective on life. If we would admit it, most of us would have to acknowledge that we seldom give much thought to our future existence in eternity. We get so caught up in the here and now, and we get so focused on this life and its demands, its responsibilities, its obligations, that we forget where our real home is. That's a very unhealthy perspective to have on life. You see, Christianity at its very heart is future-oriented. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said when he wrote to the church at Corinth, In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 19, I'll just read you the verse. He says this. He says, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. In other words, if this is all there is to Christianity, then we are fools. But this isn't all there is. If we are genuinely born from above, then this world is not really home to us. We're only passing through. In 1 Peter 2.11, Peter appealed to his readers as sojourners and pilgrims. Let Let that word picture crystallize in your mind. We're sojourners. We're pilgrims. 
In Philippians 3.20, Paul says, Our citizenship is in heaven. So our focus should be there. Not on this land that we're traveling through and passing through. This is a major theme throughout Scripture, and it should be a major focus of our lives. Considering God's plans for the future can help give us that kind of focus, that kind of perspective. You see, as children of God, we are never promised an easy road here on earth. In fact, we're promised just the opposite. In John 16, Jesus said, In this world you will have tribulation. You're going to have trouble. You're going to have problems. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. James 1.2 says, Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. James does not say if you fall into trials, but when you fall into trials. So the only thing we are promised as sojourners and pilgrims is that things will be tough at times. But the resounding message of Scripture is that if we are really born of God, then one day it will be worth it. Listen to what Paul said in Galatians chapter 6 along these same lines. Again, I'll just read it to you. Galatians 6, 9. He says, And let us not grow weary of doing good. Don't get tired of doing what the Lord wants us to do in life. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. You see, a proper perspective on the future is key for the Christian life today. Jesus constantly used this kind of motivation to direct attention toward the surpassing value of the eternal over the temporal Do you remember what he said in his immortal uh, Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6? He says in verse 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Jesus was basically saying, Think about eternity. Live in light of eternity. That kind of focus, that kind of perspective is crucial for consistent, faithful Christian living. One of the ways to clear up our focus, one of the ways to clear clear up our perspective on this life is to consider what God has planned for the future. Contrary to what some Christians believe, prophecy has practical value practical implications in our lives today. To see this, look at 1 John chapter 2. Right after 2 Peter, where we have been studying, is 1 John. Look at 1 John chapter 2. And as we read through these verses, I want you to notice how John links events in the future with practical Christian living today. I want you to notice the relationship, how he connects them. He says in verse 28 of 1 John 2, And now, little children, abide in him. That's present. That's our lives today. Abide in him, so that when he appears, that's future, we may have confidence 
and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are the children of God. That's present. It's our lives today. Now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. Now he's talking about the future. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That's future. But notice how John brings it back to the present. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. That's the practical application. John says, if you really believe that Jesus is coming again someday, if you really believe you're going to stand before him someday, then that will impact the way you live life daily. A Christian who isn't concerned about abiding in Christ and living a pure life has lost sight of the fact that Jesus is coming again and we will stand before him. The reality of the future has specific implications on the way you and I live day in and day out. God's intention for revealing the future to us in his word is not just so we can fill our minds with facts, so we can fill our minds with information, so we can put together complicated charts. God's intention is to change our lives by the truth of future events. If that's not what happens when we study predictive prophecy, then we're missing the boat. We're missing the point. We are short-circuiting God's designed plan. One more passage before we look at our text in 2 Peter. Look with me at Titus chapter 2. Go back to the left after 1 and 2 Timothy. Before the book of Hebrews is the little letter called Titus. Titus chapter 2. Verse 11. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. That's now. That's life today. We are to live soberly, righteously, and godly. This is what our salvation teaches us. When God saves us, this is what he teaches us. This begs the question, how? How can we live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age? Or to ask it a different way, what kind of perspective, what kind of focus produces that kind of living? Look at the next verse, verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. That's the future. Verse 14, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. But there it is again, this relationship between future and present. Righteous living is directly related to our focus on future events and future hope. How can people read passages like this and say that a study of predictive prophecy has no practical value. Oftentimes we separate the two, but God never intended it to be that way. 
and understanding of God's plan for the future has practical implications and ramifications for every child of God today. That comes through loud and clear in our text this morning in 2 Peter chapter 3. So let's go back to 2 Peter 3 and consider our text together. 2 Peter chapter 3. You may remember that in this third chapter, Peter has been talking about the second coming of Christ. That is his focus in the early verses of this chapter. He has stated without apology that one day the Lord Jesus Christ will return to this earth in cataclysmic judgment. Christians have believed this and stated this since Jesus ascended back into heaven almost 2,000 years ago. However, because it hasn't happened yet, some people scoff at the suggestion that Jesus is coming back again in judgment. Why hasn't he returned? Why? If God is going to end this present world by the second coming of his son in judgment, why hasn't he done it already? Peter gives two answers to that question here in this chapter. Number one, God's perspective of time is different than ours. That's verse 8. And number two, God's heart for the lost prompts him to wait. That's verse 9. That's why it hasn't happened yet. God's perspective of time is different than ours, and God's heart for the lost prompts him to wait, to execute judgment, but it is coming. And that is what Peter reaffirms in our text this morning. Notice what he says here in verse 10. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. He says, but, but, he's just said in verse 9 that the Lord is patient, he's long-suffering, but, verse 10, the day of the Lord will come. It will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. To understand this verse, we need to understand the background of the phrase, the day of the Lord. Peter uses that phrase here, in the beginning of verse 10. The day of the Lord is a technical phrase used many, many times in Hebrew Scripture, the Old Testament, to refer to a future time of fierce judgment. It is primarily a time of death, destruction, devastation, and vengeance. It is described in Isaiah 2, 12 through 21, Isaiah 13, 6 through 11, Jeremiah 30, verses 4 through 7, Joel 2, verses 1 through 31, Zephaniah 1, verses 14 through 18. Those are just a few passages in the Hebrew Scripture that refer to the day of the Lord. And if you study all the passages closely, you will find that often the prophets would describe a judgment of their time, of their day, as a preview of the ultimate day of the Lord judgment that will take place in the end time. That's the background to this phrase here in verse 10. The day of the Lord, then, is not merely a day. It's a time or an event or a series of events. Man has had his day for a long time now, but the time is coming when the Lord will have his day. We even use the word day in this same way in our own vocabulary, in our own culture. You will hear people say something like this. Well, back in my day, 
We did such and such. Back in my day, this is, you know, this is how we did it or whatever. Or maybe someone will will refer back even further. They will say, back in the day of Abraham Lincoln, when people use those kinds of phrases, they are not talking about one specific day. They are talking about a time that is characterized by something. That's the way the Scripture uses this phrase, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord will be a time that is characterized by the fierce judgment of God. There are at least two future events that Peter has in mind when he uses this phrase because he mentions both of them right here in this chapter. One of them is the physical, literal, bodily second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to the earth in flaming judgment at the end of the seven-year tribulation period. That's one. And the other is the dissolution of the present heaven and earth in connection with the great white throne judgment at the end of the 1,000-year kingdom. Peter mentions the second coming in verse 4 of this chapter and the dissolution of the universe here in verse 10. Both of those events or both of those times are considered the day of the Lord because both are special interventions of God in fierce judgment. As we saw a couple messages ago, the second coming of the Lord Jesus is a fierce judgment because it will involve the destruction of all the armies gathered together at the Battle of Armageddon. It will also involve the consigning of the Antichrist and false prophet to hell, the lake of fire. It will also involve the sheep and goat judgment leading into the millennial kingdom. So the second coming of the Lord Jesus is a future time of fierce judgment. And as such, it is called by Peter, rightly so, the day of the Lord. Peter reminds us here that it will come as a thief in the night. The people of this world will not be ready for it. They should be ready for it. Because God will give many signs about its coming, but they will ignore the signs. They will dismiss them. In Matthew 24, 37, Jesus said, But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. In other words, it's going to be just like it was in Noah's day. Should the people of Noah's day known what was happening? Yes. They had a man for 120 years preaching to them, building a huge, gigantic barge. The people in Noah's day had plenty of warning, but they ignored the warnings and they were completely caught off guard once the rain began. That's the way it will be with the second coming. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. One thousand years later, there will be another major event or series of events that Peter refers to here in verse 10. It is also called the day of the Lord. Because it is part of the, of the day of the Lord's fierce judgment. Peter tells us that this will involve the heavens passing away with a great noise and the elements melting with fervent heat. Let's turn over to Revelation chapter 20 to see John's description of what Peter is talking about here. Revelation chapter 20. Verse 7. 
It says, now when the thousand years have expired, this is, that's the reference to the thousand year kingdom, the millennial kingdom. When the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. This was already stated back at the end of verse 3 of this chapter. Verse 3 says, Satan will be bound for the 1,000 year kingdom, but after these things he must be released for a little while. By the way, this text is a real problem for those who are amillennial because they say, they have to say, and they do say, that Satan is bound now, and they don't know how to explain what it means that he will be released at some point in the future. This passage also poses similar problems for the post-millennial view. Satan isn't bound now. If Satan is bound now, then he has a really, really long chain. He isn't bound now, but he will be bound during the kingdom. He will not be allowed to be active during the 1,000-year kingdom because he will be bound in the abyss or the prison, as this verse says. Now understand, this is not hell as we'll see later in the text. The abyss is the place of imprisonment, and that's where Satan will be held captive for the millennial kingdom. Verse 8 says, And he will go out, this is once he is released at the end of the thousand years, he will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea. Now maybe you're wondering, why will these people want to join Satan to defeat Christ? I thought everyone in the kingdom will be devoted to Christ. What's going on here? Remember, some of the people who go into the kingdom will do so with their natural bodies. Matthew 25 tells us about the Gentiles who will enter the kingdom in their natural bodies. And many other passages speak of the fact that the saved Jewish people who are still alive at the end of the tribulation, will also go right into the kingdom with their natural bodies. These people will have children, and their children will have children, and so on, for throughout the 1,000-year kingdom. So there will be billions of people on the planet because of the conditions of the kingdom. Disease will be eliminated, and it appears that death will only result from overt rebellion. So there will be a massive population explosion on planet Earth. Many of these descendants will conform externally to the reign of Christ because any outward rebellion will have been severely judged. But even though they conform externally, their hearts, their hearts won't be devoted to Christ in true submission and love. That is why Satan will be able to gather so many The last phrase of this verse says, whose number is as the sand of the sea. Verse 9 tells us, they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, that's obviously a reference to Jerusalem, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. When Satan has gathered together all the rebels for this one last attempt, To thwart God's program, they will all head to Jerusalem. Satan will have craftily organized this final revolt, but it will all end in a flash. The last phrase of the verse says very simply, And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. That's how it's going to end. 
The only kind of judgment that remains after this point is the great white throne judgment of God and rebels being cast into the lake of fire. John describes that in verses 11 through 15 of this chapter. So Satan's army of rebels will be defeated in a flash. The people. What about Satan himself? Verse 10. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now that is hell. That is the lake of fire. Satan has not been there during the kingdom. He's been bound in the abyss or the prison. But now at this point he is cast into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet are. The beast and the false prophet were cast there at the beginning of the 1,000-year kingdom. And Satan and his hosts will be sent there at the end of the 1,000-year kingdom. In Matthew 25, 41, Jesus said that hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. So, so Satan will end up there and so will all his demons. They will be tormented night and day forever. But people will also end up there. Even though hell was prepared for the devil and his angels, people will end up there because they love their sin and they refuse God's salvation. They too will be tormented night and day forever and ever. And this leads into what Peter refers to in our text. Notice verse 11. John says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. The very next thing John saw in this vision was a great white throne. This judgment will condemn the unsaved of all the ages to the eternal lake of fire. The last phrase in the verse says, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. That is a fascinating phrase. It is either describing the uncreation of the universe so it can be recreated, or it is describing the death of the universe so it can be transformed into a new heaven and new earth. The commentators are split over their analysis of exactly what John is describing here. It all comes out the same. But some see it as the vanishing of the universe into nothingness, followed by an entirely new creation. For example, in his commentary titled The Revelation of Jesus Christ, Dr. John F. Walvoord says, the most natural interpretation of the fact that earth and heaven flee away is that the present earth and heaven are destroyed and will be replaced by the new heaven and new earth. This is also confirmed by the additional statement in chapter 21, verse 1, where John sees a new heaven and a new earth replacing the first heaven and the first earth which have passed away, end quote. So that's one perspective, is that this is saying that this universe will dissolve into nothing. There will be nothing again, and God will recreate, just as he did in Genesis, a new heaven and a new earth. Others see it as a change of the external order of the world, not of its substance or material. In other words, a dissolving of everything down into its basic elements, which God uses then to recreate the new heaven and the new earth. Whichever is the case, this is what the apostle Peter is referring to 
in our text in 2 Peter 3. It is followed by the condemnation of all the lost of all the ages. Look at verse 15. John says, And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. The statement is simple in its expression. There is no unnecessary elaboration. There is no exaggeration. But the meaning of this one verse is utterly profound and abysmal. People will spend eternity in the lake of fire along with the beast, the false prophet, the demons, and Satan himself. This is the day of the Lord that Peter talks about in our text in 2 Peter chapter 3. Now let's go back to our text there in 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter gives us more details than John concerning what is going to happen to the universe at that time. Notice how Peter describes it here in 2 Peter chapter 3. He says in verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up or laid bare, depending on your translation. As I mentioned just a moment ago, there are two current views of what is being described here, and they they, they come out the same way, but just trying to wrestle through what, what the text is describing. One view is that the present universe will melt into nothing, and God will start from scratch to create a new heaven and a new earth, just as he did back in Genesis. Others believe that this is describing something similar to what happens to us when we die and are eventually raised to life. In other words, when we die, our, our bodies eventually decay and decompose down to almost nothing, but there's still something there. However, 1 Corinthians 15 says, God is going to use the remaining seed form of our bodies to recreate bodies for us that are glorified in new. In that case, it's not a totally new body in the sense of being unrelated to our original body. Our new body will be new in the sense that it will be raised and glorified and incorruptible and immortal. But it won't be new in the sense of being completely unlike our original body. For example, if you are over six feet tall in this life, you're not going to be five feet tall when you get your new body. There is a relationship between the new body and the old body, and some interpreters suggest that is the same kind of relationship between the new universe and the old universe. Either way, the point is the same. In the day of the Lord, this universe will be radically changed to become a new heavens and new earth. That is what the Lord has planned for this universe. This is what God is going to do with this present universe. That's his future plan. And he has told us about it in advance so that we won't get enamored with and fixated on this present world. This world is not our home and this world is not eternal. And so Peter draws an application in verse 11. He says this, Therefore, therefore, since all these things will be dissolved... What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? 
This is the application Peter draws from what he has just been teaching. Let me paraphrase it. He is saying this. In light of the fact that this world is not eternal, you and I should not live our lives according to this world's standards, this world's values, this world's priorities. We should not take our cues from this world. As Paul said in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This world tells us to live for self, to live for now, to live for pleasure. But God tells us to live lives of holiness and godliness. Just as a little side note, this verse here, verse 10, could be translated as a statement or a rhetorical question. If we translate it as a statement, it would read, How excellent you ought to be! Exclamation point. How excellent you ought to be! However, most of our English translations render it as a rhetorical question, which is a valid way to translate it. It would read this way, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? That's a valid question. That's a fair question for us to contemplate. Since this world is temporary, since this world is transitory, should we live the way the people of the world live or should we live lives of holiness and godliness? Surely you know the answer to that question. Everyone here knows the answer to that question. We know the answer intellectually. But sadly, our lives don't always reflect the answer practically. So let me say it this way for us to consider as we begin to wind down this morning. Let me say it this way in closing. The answer to the question, now please hear this. The answer to the question of what sort of people we should be is not an answer that we can merely give verbally. It's easy to give the answer verbally, but the real answer is in our lives. The real answer is the way we live our lives. What sort of persons ought you to be? What kind of people should we be? And it's as if the Holy Spirit says, well, well don't, don't answer that verbally. Answer that by your life. Your life will give me the answer. It's as if the Lord is saying, your life will give me the answer to that question. How you live reflects your answer to the question. Let's bow together as we close. As you bow your head and close your eyes here in the remaining few minutes that we have together, Think about what you have seen in God's Word this morning. Much of it related to the future. And as I've stated several times, God tells us about the future for a specific reason. Not just to satisfy our curiosity, not just to fill our minds with facts or data. God tells us about the future to impact the present. So let's ask ourselves a question, honestly now. You don't have to answer it to anyone except between you and the Lord. Does your life reflect a belief in what God has said about the future? Does the way you live demonstrate that you really believe 
that this world is not eternal, it is temporary, it's transitory, and that our citizenship is in heaven. That's our real eternal home. Does your life, does mine, reflect that truth? That is the issue this text forces us to contemplate this morning. Now, if you're here today without Christ, then that is especially the case for you. Because eternity is real, as we saw this morning in these passages. The lake of fire is real. Hell is real. And you will spend eternity either in the presence of Christ or the lake of fire. There are no other alternatives, no other options. Every person in this room will spend eternity in the presence of Christ or the lake of fire. And that all is determined by where you stand with Jesus Christ, your relationship with him. So if you're here today without a a proper right relationship with Jesus Christ, you need to humble yourself before God. You need to repent of your sin, acknowledge your sin, let go of whatever is holding you back, and in simple childlike faith, surrender to Jesus Christ. You can do that this very moment, right where you are seated in the quietness of your own heart. You don't have to walk forward to do that. You don't have to raise your hand in your heart. You believe and trust Christ and surrender to him. I urge you to do that this morning. And if you are a child of God, evaluate your life. Does it demonstrate that you really believe that your citizenship is in heaven and this world is not our home? Father, may your Holy Spirit be pleased to take and use the truth to which we've been exposed this morning. Truth about the present, truth about the future that should affect the present. May your Spirit use that truth to impact our lives. Whatever that means. For those who are are without Christ, it obviously means for them the, the need to repent and surrender to the Lord Jesus. And for those of us who do know him, it means that we should evaluate our lives, take stock, take inventory. How are we living? Do our lives reflect a belief in what you have planned for the future and a belief that this world is not our home? We're only passing through. Father, grip our hearts, our minds, our lives with that truth so that that truth will impact and affect whatever changes we need to make in life. This is our prayer together in Jesus' name. Amen.